Hi there, and welcome to the Organic Stream podcast. I'm your host, Helene Murphy, and this is part two of our episode on agriculture and soils in the COP21 climate talks. Let's jump right in. We all know that the soils feed and sustain us. They nourish us. And in these times of extreme drought and extreme flooding, more than ever, we know we need to be nourishing the soil. It's now November 2016. The Paris Agreement is set to enter force on November 4th, and as of recording, there's only a week to go before COP22 starts in Marrakesh. So where are we today? Well, since COP21, we've seen the topics of agriculture and soil being pushed by initiatives like 4 per thousand, by their inclusions in the INDCs, now the NDCs, and by representatives, especially in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, who have been vocally pushing to see action on agriculture this year. And while the progress on agriculture and land use has been slow since COP21, it has become clear that they will feature strongly in COP22. <laughs> COP22 has been dubbed a COP of Action and a COP of Africa, where we start to take action on the Paris Agreement and the NDCs. I mentioned one big initiative, 4 per thousand, which Africa will play an integral role in moving forward. Another key initiative was launched this year by the President of the COP22 and Minister of Agriculture of the Kingdom of Morocco, Honorary Aziz Akanouche. The initiative is called Adaptation for African Agriculture, or the AAA Initiative, and is set to be a focus of the COP22. The initiative aims to secure funding to support African agricultural initiatives that are meant to back up the 4 per thousand initiative globally. There are a few more agricultural initiatives under what's called the Lima Paris Action Agenda, LPAA, which was set up to support the application of the INDCs, and there's a link in the podcast episode page to the site if you want to see more. So all this is promising. We wait with bated breath to see what happens this month. Now, what is this episode about? Well, in the last episode, we talked a lot about what the Paris Agreement means for soils and agriculture. We introduced some issues with policy, with measuring soil carbon and land use for mitigation. So in this episode, we're delving a little deeper into the main discussion points, the challenges and the dangers we're facing right now in making agriculture and soil a key player in climate change strategies. By the end, we should have a decent overview of the situation and we'll be all set for COP22. To start, let's get a snapshot of where we are in climate discussions of agriculture and soil at the moment. To do this, I'm going to take a look at the Subsidiary Body for Scientific and Technological Advice, or SBSTA for short, which supports the work of the COP through the provision of timely information and advice on scientific technological matters related to the Convention or the Kyoto Protocol. Since 2011, the SBSTA has been meeting to exchange views on agriculture's role in climate change and advise the UNFCCC on agricultural matters. 
Just like with the COP, progress has been slow here since it's hard to bring all the different viewpoints together. However, the last few years have shown some interesting developments. In 2014, after much work and debate, it was agreed that the parties and observers involved were to submit their views in the coming years on a number of key areas. And I'm just going to mention the two areas that are most relevant for us here. The first is the identification of adaptation measures, taking into account the diversity of the agricultural systems, indigenous knowledge systems, the differences in scale, as well as possible co-benefits and sharing experiences in research and development and on-the-ground activities, including socio-economic, environmental and gender aspects. Okay, so that was a bit of a mouthful and here comes the second one. The identification and assessment of agricultural practices and technologies to enhance productivity in a sustainable manner, food security and resilience, considering the differences in agroecological zones and farming systems, such as different grassland and cropland practices and systems. So these two are talking about adaptation measures and enhancing productivity in a sustainable manner. And we've got references here to diversity, food security, the inclusion of indigenous knowledge systems and socio-economic, environmental and gender aspects. All important things to include in any climate change strategy for agriculture. And it's a result of a lot of hard work to get these issues prioritised. Now, the submissions themselves give us some insights into the common trends and concerns. One thing that seems to crop up often is the need for a holistic approach to adaptation, that approaches take into account the multiple elements and outcomes involved. Many look for a truly rights-based approach, in particular for smallholder farmers and indigenous populations. Quite a few submissions emphasize the importance of maintaining and reviving traditional and local knowledge and practices. All good things. CSA, which stands for Climate Smart Agriculture, seems to be criticised by some parties for being too focused on productivity and being unable to adapt to local contexts. Many instead favour agroecology, a whole systems approach to agriculture and farming, which was something we heard a lot during COP21 as well. Now, when it comes to the challenges, I'm going to summarise the key challenges highlighted in an analysis brief on the SBSTA submissions by the Centre of International Forestry Research in May. And this is linked on the podcast episode page as well under resources. One of the biggest challenges highlighted is in how to scale up good practices and technologies when we have so many diverse agricultural systems and different contexts. There is a struggle to access the knowledge needed for many communities and farmers out there. And this brings us to the next challenge, which is the need for inclusive research that is able to respond to the changing climates quickly, is flexible and takes into account local knowledge. Farmers need to be included and active in the research process, since it's been observed that decades of top-down agricultural research has weakened traditional knowledge and innovation. This needs to change. Knowledge needs to reach local farmers wherever they are, be integrated with local systems and be practical. This knowledge also has to be accessible to policymakers as well. And as well as research, greater knowledge sharing and cooperation between communities and countries is another issue highlighted. Some submissions called for the development of an agricultural knowledge and learning platform 
and an SBSTA work program on agriculture has also been proposed. One of the biggest challenges is, of course, finance. Economic inequality has exacerbated many environmental problems. Only a small percentage of funding goes towards those who need it most. And as I mentioned in part one, funding for agricultural adaptation has not been significant as of yet. Many parties in the SBSTA want to know exactly how farmers, and especially smallholder farmers, would receive incentives to change their practices. Many of the submissions call for stronger links between agriculture and the finance, capacity and technology mechanisms of the UNFCCC. It'll be interesting to see what happens with finance during COP22. In May this year, CGIAR's research programme on climate change, agriculture and food security published a report that details 10 options that build on these latest submissions and discussions, with pros and cons for each option. This was published to give countries a knowledge base for the COP22 talks. We don't have time right now to go through this in detail, but we've linked to this report on our podcast page for those of you who are interested in delving deeper on all we've covered here. So now we've got a good overview of some of the key priorities being discussed. It's good to hear such an emphasis being placed on things like local solutions, knowledge sharing, rights-based approaches and food security. But as always, things are not settled. There are still some dangers we need to watch out for as we move forward, particularly with mitigation. And we're going to get into this now. It's time to bring back Action Aid's Teresa Anderson to highlight some of these dangers. During her talk at the Compost Roundtable at COP21, she made some very important points that I want to share. Let's start with point number one. What I would like to say about soil carbon is that even though I fully agree that the planet's climate benefits from us putting soil carbon, compost, manure, etc. in the ground, um, and this is a key strategy for mitigation and climate change, we should be really careful not to add soil carbon counting to national targets. Now, it's really complicated. I'm going to try and explain why quickly. Um, Well, there's a scientific reason, or a few scientific reasons. One is that it's not quite the same to actually cut emissions by a tonne as to sequester a tonne of carbon in the soil. And and it's a bit dangerous to claim that one is equivalent or can be offset with another because if you you actually cut emissions by a tonne, you've actually cut them. They're not anywhere. But if they're in the atmosphere and you've put them in the soil through building up your soil, there's a lot of activities that can happen that can make that soil degrade again. So it's called not permanent uh, sequestration. Um, and that is, you can do it through ploughing, you can do it through adding fertilisers. If there's a drought or high temperatures, that soil carbon can degrade back into carbon dioxide. So it's very, um, when it comes to counting towards your mitigation targets, it's actually a bit dangerous to say a tonne is a tonne because you could be claiming you've cut and so you don't really need to cut your industrial emissions because you've done it in your soil. But then actually you, your soil degrades and really the planet is seeing the same as if you'd never done it in the first place. So here we come to one of the big reasons why people have been pushing against some mitigation efforts and why progress has been so slow since 2001. 
Soil sequestration is not permanent sequestration. It's true, and it would be dangerous to treat it as if it was. This fact has led to calls by some not to couple land use with the mitigation efforts in other sectors because it could lead to uncertainties in how much emissions reduction is actually being achieved. The other issue Teresa discusses here is the problem with using mitigation as a delay tactic. So, if we can suck down emissions, it means we won't have to stop creating them. There was some of this thinking present at COP21 with assumptions that the unproven BEX technology would allow us to keep doing business as usual. Not a very safe solution. This dangerous thinking was the key worry during COP21 and within the SBSTA talks on agriculture in the past as well. It was the chief worry with the likes of the 4 per thousand initiative as well. Initiatives that aim to sequester a certain amount of carbon into soils in order to offset emissions, well, if they were being tied to carbon offset and trading programs, there is a risk that it could bring investment that disenfranchises indigenous or rural communities or that it would promote harmful technologies. And it's good to be careful here. Without proper planning to make sure carbon credits are real, permanent and actually contribute to sustainable development, things can go the wrong way. We've seen how some large-scale emission offset schemes have led to problems before. The Clean Development Mechanism, for example, which is the largest of the UN offset schemes, has sometimes ended up rewarding polluters and expanding harmful projects while sidelining beneficial ones, as Enzo Favuino mentioned during the roundtable. How did the emission trading scheme uh consider so far composting, almost to no extent. Composting is included in the clean development mechanisms. You know, the clean development mechanisms are there, and there's 180 incinerators being funded in Asia now under the clean development mechanisms, because they say they might be needed to mitigate the greenhouse gases. What about compost? And they say, we have got a calculation method for composting, but it only includes diversion of organics from landfills. So once again, you come up only with a figure which is the reduced methane produced from landfills. But what about crediting the soil-related effects? Carbon sequestration, improved water retention, improved workability, and so on and so forth. Aside from this, as we've discussed, including soil sequestration to national carbon targets or in a carbon trading scheme is further complicated by the fact that accurately measuring soil carbon sequestration is still not easy to do. Then there's another factor of uh, a very technical factor. It's incredibly difficult to uh, monitor, report and verify soil carbon on a large scale on farms. And, you know, we, we hear a lot of ambitious ideas that we can sequester millions, billions hectares of land uh, with soil carbon, but it's going to be very difficult. I mean, it changes from metre to square metre, you know, because soils, especially in Africa, are incredibly diverse. So you kind of have to make up proxy numbers, an average, to say, well, I guess it's about this amount per square metre, and I guess that this is about however many square metres... So, but you basically have to make it up. You're not really measuring it. So it's very, very complex. And if you are going to do it at any actual scientific standard, it's incredibly expensive. It makes it very difficult to manage on a large scale. Now, in terms of the 4 per thousand initiative, the French government have emphasised that agroecology, small farmers and family farmers will play a central role, which is great to hear. 
The initiative's governing body will be announced this month during COP22, so we'll be interested to see how this progresses. So far, we're hopeful. And now, before we move on, I want to highlight just one more danger that's related to the ones we were talking about. The greenwashing of not-so-green mitigation strategies. Now, we're all on the same page on our values, but unfortunately there are some other players out there that really, really talk about mitigation in soils as well. And they might not be people that we really want to sit with, such as uh, Monsanto. Right? They're now claiming that their GMOs are a mitigation solution and that they enhance soil carbon. I know it's really sick, but what they say is with their Roundup Ready, you know, they have these Roundup Ready seeds like soya and maize that are um, tolerant to herbicides to Roundup. So it means that you can just, instead of weeding, you know, you can just spray your glyphosate, your Roundup herbicide, and all the weeds die back. And they say, look, we haven't had to till the soil, so we've reduced carbon emissions. That's a climate smart agriculture. This is like, you know, sequestering soil carbon. Brilliant. So let's sequester soil carbon, and we've got just the technology to do it. And I'm pretty sure most people here aren't really thinking that's the way that we need to go. But we really need to be careful that we don't open the door to this kind of thing when we call for it. So if we're not clear about our priorities and what we want to protect, it can lead to a twisting of logic and to greenwashing. We need to be careful and keep all of these things in mind as we move forward. We take a short break now to thank Biobin for making this episode possible. Biobin is a mobile, on-site, organic and wet material management solution that starts the composting process and effectively manages odour from putricible waste. It can be used in a variety of outlets, including food manufacturing, restaurants, shopping centres, supermarkets and much more. Wherever organics or wet materials are generated, Biobin is the solution. And now, back to the show. Now, let's bring the focus back to compost once again. Compost is one of the best and safest ways to put carbon back into the soils. And producing compost ensures we keep organic materials out of landfills and incinerators as well. But there are still a lot of issues with market creation and financing the composting industry and getting farmers to use it. So, keeping in mind all the dangers we talked about, how do we make sure we build compost markets and support production in the right way? How can we make sure that incentives and financing schemes are designed in a fair and healthy way to support local communities, local solutions and closed-loop systems? These are the questions we're all working towards answering in this space. And it was a key question put to the speakers at the Compost Roundtable. So I want to highlight a few of these examples. First to Europe, and Enzo Favuino explained an interesting workaround they found to achieve subsidies for compost use in Italy. Consider this. In Italy, we managed to convince 10 regions out of a total of 20 regions to adopt under the Rural Development Plans, which is a a granting program under the Common Agricultural Policy established by the European Union, they introduced some subsidies for the farmers when they use compost or other soil improvers instead of mineral fertilizers. Because, Because 
the effects are not easy to be taken into account because they are crop-specific, soil-specific, weather-specific, slope-specific, and so on and so forth. But anyway, we know that using compost, you fight climate change, you fight desertification, you fight eutrophication, and so on and so forth. Basically, we prepared the framing concepts, and we had to show evidence that compost is benefiting uh, to the environment under different angles. This was picked up also by one prominent study which was issued by the European Commission in the last few years, which is the Clean Soil Report, the report on soils and climate change, which for, for the first time ever was highlighting the unexpressed potential of using compost to store carbon in soils. And that was picking on our arguments. So we had a set of concepts which was ready to be transferred into a funding policy. And therefore, under this crediting scheme of the rural development plans, the rural development plans are a granting scheme according to which the farmers are subsidized once they implement a measure which is not benefiting directly their microeconomics, but they are benefiting to the environment and therefore to society as a whole. And since we had all the framing concepts for that, it was particularly easy at that stage for us to convince the regions to have it tabled under the rural development plans. So that's one clever solution they found to tap into the European Rural Development Plans funding. And it was made possible thanks to the Clean Soils report, highlighting once again how vital research is in gaining support and shaping policy. In some areas, progress is being made on policy specifically for compost and soil health. California has been leading the way with its support for compost for many years, and Kala Rose Ostrander, who spoke about the Marin Carbon Project in Part 1, gave us an update about what's been happening in California. In California, the compost market was not regulated on its own. It had been part of the zero-waste sort of field, and we had never really separated it out and said, how do you incentivize and structure this marketplace? So from a compost perspective, we went in and we said, okay, if we think compost is good, what do we need? We need streamlined regulation and permitting. We need a higher price on compost. We need um, incentives for the producers, and we need incentives for the buyers. So we started working on policies that would do all of those things. And it's a relatively new marketplace. So so we were able to set a lot of really strong policies in place last year and this year hopefully again that will restructure that market. So I would encourage you to take a look and see, does compost have its own market? Uh, in California, actually, there's more demand than there is supply. So it was just a question of how we build out uh, supply. I think the other part is you know, this idea that there are other practices that build soil carbon, like restoring wetlands, cover crops. We're seeing that creekside restoration has some of the highest carbon benefits in lands, um, at least in our climate, than, than any other practice. So those types of practices we are looking to subsidize through something called the Healthy Soils Initiative. So the governor of California, Jerry Brown, added a fifth pillar to his climate change plan, and that is agriculture and healthy soils. So the Healthy Soils Initiative will take money from California's cap-and-trade system, and hopefully the budget hasn't been voted on yet, but fingers crossed, it will put some of that money towards what we're calling carbon farming or healthy soils, so increasing soil organic matter, and it will be a direct subsidy to farmers. 
What we're doing right now is it will most likely be per ton, and there's a set of tools that will be used to estimate that. Um, we had to do a lot of work building out those tools because the variability is so high. They're very conservative, but we worked closely with the USDA, and they estimate um, farm-based soil carbon sequestration. And again, they're very conservative, but they've passed a lot of the legal hurdles that we need in order to open up climate funding uh, to agriculture in California. So that's pretty interesting, and it's good news for this initiative. The Healthy Soils Initiative was just funded this September for 7.5 million US dollars. So it's going ahead, which is great to hear. Now, the Healthy Soils Initiative is funded by the California Cap and Trade System, which is a carbon emissions trading scheme, and it requires companies to hold enough emissions allowances to cover their emissions, and these companies are free to buy and sell allowances on the open market. And it seems to be working. In 2014, the board reported that emissions from covering industries came in 9% below the mandated limit for that year. And for this reason, the program was declared officially a success. This year, it has been facing some difficulties, which led to some uncertainty over the funding of initiatives like Healthy Soils. However, Governor Jerry Brown made it clear he's determined to keep it going, and it seems to be popular with the general public too. A recent poll by the Public Policy Institute of California found that more than 50% favour cap-and-trade. Thanks in part to this support, the Healthy Soils Initiative was able to be funded, and we're excited to see how it goes. But, as we know, cap-and-trade programs and carbon credits are not the only way to grow a compost market, as Enzo explains. Crediting carbon is not the only way of marketing compost. We have been going on with the composting strategies for a few decades without uh, talking about the carbon credits. Basically, we have been marketing and using and promoting the use of compost uh, through different ways, And in this respect, uh, you have to consider that agriculture is a very differentiated world. So if you want to use compost in vineyards, you have to put the accent on certain particular benefits. Normally, in the Mediterranean climates, and this is specifically the case also in California besides Southern Europe, one of the biggest problems which are impairing uh, the production and quality of vineyards is uh, the shortage of water in summertime. Once you use compost, the water retention uh, helps overcoming such a problem. Whereas the marketing point, the selling point, when we sell compost uh, to professional gardeners and landscapers and managers of greenhouses is uh, the potential of replacing peat. You know, harvesting peat is particularly cheap. But then it's a very lightweight material, and so transporting peat and shipping it from around the world becomes incredibly expensive. So once you want to have peat on the place where it has to be used, its cost will be incredibly high. So uh, compost as a replacement of peat is gaining interest in this respect. Also, in this respect, one selling point is the so-called suppressive power of compost, which is the ability of compost to reduce the occurrence of uh, plant pathologies. Mm-hmm. Because peat is good for the physical properties, but it's the poorest material when it comes to biological properties. Whereas compost is rich in beneficial microbes, and so they keep the bad ones outside the system. 
So what Enzo is talking about here brings me to education and raising awareness about the environmental, but especially the economic benefits of adding carbon to soils. There are many more initiatives out there based on educating and empowering farmers on using sustainable agricultural and land management practices, which have been successful. We don't have time to really delve any deeper into this topic for this episode, but of course it will be the basis of many episodes to come, as it has been in the past. We're coming to the end now of our episode on agriculture, soils and climate change. Even though it was more of an overview, we still covered a lot, and it's clear we have a lot of work ahead of us in COP22. But as a final note, I want to zoom out and look at the big picture once again and the core issue that goes through all of the challenges and dangers we discussed. At the end of the Compost Roundtable Session 1, Kala Rose Ostrander summed up perfectly what this core issue is in her reply to Teresa's points. I really appreciate Teresa's comments. I think that it's important to clarify that what she's talking about is a problem of framework. It's the way the policy framework is structured and how you account for emissions. And at some point, you have to step outside of that and say, how does the planet actually work? And what do we need to do to really solve this problem? And I think that knowing what we know about the biological carbon cycle, our current climate policy framework is not well suited, like she said very well, to demonstrate the benefits or even really regulate or incentivize the biological carbon cycle. It's really set up for point source carbon mitigation for emissions, and it doesn't understand these large cycles. So what we're actually proposing is a really big shift in the way we think towards balancing the global carbon cycle, not just stopping emissions at the point source, although that's incredibly important, and I do really hope that we see a strong commitment come out of these talks for that. But I think that the community's push to try to include agriculture is right from a value standpoint, but perhaps not sensitive to what she brought up, which is that the policy framework is not well suited for it. However, that doesn't mean that it's not a strong solution and that we shouldn't find ways to put money in towards it, knowing that it will solve for climate change. What Kala says here relates back to Enzo Favoino's statement in part one that we don't have to improve the world in a model, we have to improve it in real life. So let's keep fighting to find a better way to do this and see what COP22 brings us. That was episode 45 of the Organic Stream podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, do share them with us. You can leave a comment on our website, organicstream.org, or send us a tweet. Our Twitter handle is the Orgstream. Don't forget you can subscribe to us either on our website or on iTunes, SoundCloud, or on Stitcher as well. That's all for this week. Tune in again next time for more great stories. Music